This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Is there a connection between grilling meat on the barbecue and cancer? Dr. Vicki Ho joins us to talk about it. And... How much did that Canada Day party you threw set you back? That's the starting point for a snapshot comparing Canada 150 to our centennial back in 1967. And it comes by way of an interesting economic study. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadian scientists have developed a fiber-optic probe that can detect errant cancer cells within healthy tissues during brain tumor surgery with close to 100% accuracy. The handheld pen-like instrument known as a Rayman spectroscopy probe is able to differentiate between cancer cells and healthy cells. The process, which involves optics and computer science, takes less than 10 seconds, allowing neurosurgeons to target malignant cells for removal without having to send a tissue sample to the pathology lab. A hand-drawn map that shows Walt Disney's original ideas for Disneyland has sold at auction for more than $700,000. Van Eaton Galleries in Los Angeles says a private collector cast the winning bid. Walt Disney commissioned an illustrator to create the map in 1953 to drum up interest and investments in his new amusement park concept, and many of the ideas shown on the map became realities when Disneyland opened in Anaheim, California, in 1955. One of Elvis Presley's biggest hits will soon be turned into a children's picture book. Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfill. Love Me Tender will be published by Dial Books for Young Readers and will be available starting November 13th. The book will be illustrated by Stephanie Gregan and includes an endnote by Presley's widow, Priscilla Presley. It's part of an effort to introduce Elvis to a new generation. The last surviving cast member of the iconic film Gone with the Wind has turned 101. Olivia de Havilland played the soft-spoken Melanie, the perfect angelic foil for the headstrong Scarlett O'Hara. She earned the first of five Oscar nominations for the part, and during a career spanning six decades, de Havilland made 49 feature films, including to each his own, which earned her the Best Actress Oscar. More recently, she was named a Dame Commander in Queen Elizabeth's birthday honors list. De Havilland is also famous for her ongoing feud with her younger sister, Joan Fontaine. (laughs) 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. For many of us, a barbecue will be one of the highlights of this long Canada 150 weekend. But is there a link between charred meat from the barbecue and cancer? It's believed that the high heat often used to cook meat on the grill creates chemicals that are linked to some forms of cancer. The question is, is this link definitive and what can you do about it? I turn to Dr. Vicki Ho, Principal Scientist and Assistant Professor in the Department of Social and Preventive Medicine at the Université de Montréal. We know that when we cook meats at high temperatures, that certain chemicals that um, are carcinogenic or cancer-causing are formed. So there's generally two different types of chemicals. One we call HAAs and the other ones which we call PHs. And these chemicals are cancer-causing because they have the ability to bind directly to DNA, which is a form of damage. And over time, if this damage doesn't get repaired or is misrepaired, it can accumulate and restart the cancer process. So this is really the biologic um, hypothesis underlying why we think eating meats um, cooked at high temperature is actually harmful and can contribute to having a higher risk of getting cancer. Okay, but uh, this link, I believe that it was shown with mice and not necessarily with humans, right? Yep, this is absolutely true. Basically, these chemicals are able to bind to DNA and form what we call a DNA adduct. And you can measure these adducts in any biological material. So in a study of mine, we've actually measured it both in blood as well as in colon tissue. If people who consume a lot of meats or who consume a lot of charred meats have higher levels of this DNA adduct, then this could be related to their future possibility of developing cancer. From what I've read, it seems that the most dangerous part is uh, if you have a a charred bit, a burnt bit on your Mm. meat. Why is that? So one of the classes of these chemicals are called PAHs, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And essentially, these chemicals are found in highest concentrations within these charred bits. So one of the ways to try to avoid or lower your exposure to these chemicals is, if you did char your meat, to try to remove these portions and not eat it. What about when you get grill marks on something? You know, people try to achieve those nice Mm -hmm. grill marks. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not an expert on exactly whether whether higher pH levels are found on grill marks or not, I would say that overall we generally recommend limiting your intake of meat or limiting your exposure to using high-temperature cooking methods such as barbecuing and grilling. I think I've read that this happens on meat but not with other things. Is that right? It's really referring to muscle meats. So you wouldn't find this in, in say, tofu. Okay, what about in fish? In fish, so to be honest, with um, a lot of the research on fish, it's been very hard to quantify systematically how much of these chemicals could be formed in fish, so I can't actually answer that question. And is it the same in something like chicken as in red meat? So most of the literature has been pointing towards red meat only because I think there's a higher preference for certain cooking methods associated with red meat versus chicken. So it could also form in chicken, but the thing is we're more concerned about red meat because that's just generally what people tend to char and barbecue. What are some of the ways that you can mitigate this risk in terms of how you prepare meat for the barbecue? 
If you are barbecuing, what you could do is try to avoid directly exposing your meat to, to the flame itself and trying to avoid long cooking times at high temperatures. There's other ways as well, such as um, turning the meat over more frequently to reduce the formation of HAAs. And then another another tip that I'd previously mentioned is just to remove some of the charred portions. I've seen recommendations to microwave the meat before putting it on the grill. Mm-hmm. There has been some recommendations that's been shown that if you do this, um, first it reduces cooking time. And you're also cooking it over a lower heat, and you're going you're to be able to sort of achieve a safe internal temperature. I just, I've noticed with talking to the public, this is not a very palatable uh, recommendation, but this is definitely one, one of the ways that you could reduce your exposure. Another thing I read about was that rosemary can reduce this. Is that right? You know, it's interesting. This is still really um, a budding area of research where people are really now trying to investigate whether the use of some marinades, um, the addition of some spices, and how you cook the meat could actually mitigate the formations of these chemicals. I would say for myself, I don't see anything extremely definitive. I would say generally adhering to our public health guidelines on limiting intake of meat and engaging in an active lifestyle is probably the best way to, to prevent cancer. That was Dr. Vicky Ho of Université de Montréal. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. And speaking of barbecues, we'll investigate the party economy on this Canada Day long weekend. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. How much did it cost to throw that Canada Day party you were at? How does it compare to celebrating the centennial back in 1967? The answer provides a thumbnail sketch of how far we've come in those 50 years. And to unpack some of the details of the TD study, we're joined by TD senior economist Brian DePrato. Brian, what did you find in this study? Well, I sort of thought about it in the sense of, well, let's have a party, and what do you need for a party? Uh, you know, the first thing I thought of was, was meat. It's Canada Day. I think a lot of people are probably going to have a barbecue. Um, but even there, we see you know, some of the signs of the shifts in Canadian consumption and Canadian tastes. Uh, a great example is uh, meat, how much we consume. Uh, you know, there's a lot more Canadians nowadays who are eating a lot more beef than we used to. But per person, uh, the amount of beef we, f- uh, we eat has actually fallen uh, by about 30 percent uh, between the, the centennial and today. So a pretty big decline there. Uh, oh. At the same time, we see more meat alternatives, uh, you know, lentils, chickpeas, things like that. Let's stick to the beef for a moment. The gross number was kind of huge. So in 1967, the average person ate 66 kilos of beef a year, and that is now down to 50 kilos of beef a year. But when you look at that, 50 kilos of beef a year, that that basically comes to a kilo a week. That's right. Uh, just a little bit over two pounds a week. That's uh you know, say what you will, Canadians clearly like their beef. <laughs> That's a lot of beef. That's oh. maybe not so good for you. Uh, no, no, you may want to get a little more of the, uh, the alternatives on the plate. Is that because we're wealthier or uh, how do you explain this? Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to the, the broader shifts we've seen uh, in terms of population. So you're seeing, you know, a lot of, of, you know, diets that may not be as beef heavy, 
coming in, you're seeing a lot more concern, I think, around, uh, as you touched on there, uh, the health side of things. We're seeing, you know, it's still pretty rare, but, you know, vegetarianism, uh, veganism starting to become more popular. Uh, you know, there's definite taste shifts in terms of, you know, you remember uh, when they're advertising pork as the other white meat, um, you know, this awareness that beef may not be the best choice. Uh, I think these all kind of come together to, to make that, that shift in how much we're eating individually, although, uh, you know, we are still eating quite a bit. I believe that uh, now something like 5% of the population are vegetarian and vegan. That's right. It's really hard to get uh, you know, a clear read on this. This isn't something Statistics Canada actually tracks. Uh, but we found somewhere between 5 and 8%, so uh, a little less than uh, 1 in 10 or maybe 1 in 20 people. To me, that sounds like a lot. Uh, it does seem a bit high. You, know, you think about the, the population you know, of Canada, you, that's suggesting that we're talking about... Um, you know, more than a, a million vegetarians here. So, again, a little bit of a grain of salt because it's not quite that same robust uh, data. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a, a climbing trend. Let's get to uh, one of the fun parts of a party, and that's the consumption of alcohol. <laughs> Canadians spent $22 billion on alcoholic beverages last year. That's a lot. That is a lot of money. And, uh, you know, when it comes to what Canadians are buying, it's shifted a little bit, but that old, that old stereotype still holds. The lion's share is still being spent on beer. About 40% of that $22 billion going to the cases of beer. Uh, the big trend there, of course, is that it's actually fallen a little bit. So if you go back just to 2004, um, you know, it was, it was 50%, sort of 50 cents of every dollar there spent on beer. So a little bit of shift in taste, uh, but still the most popular beverage. And it's shifted towards wine. That's right. Canadians are drinking a lot more wine. Um, and, you know, I think this one's pretty straightforward. You know, we see this a lot in, um, you know, international experience as well. You know, as countries become uh, wealthier, and of course, Canada is uh, an aging country as well, uh, we see the taste start to shift a little bit more towards wine and spirits, less so beer. And certainly that's exactly what we've seen here in Canada. So it has something to do with the aging of the population. That's right. That's right. We find, uh, or I should say, the sort of the data shows that uh, older people, uh, they tend to drink maybe a little more wine than they, they did when they were a kid, a, a little less beer. So uh, all told, uh, what's included in this party that you costed out and uh, how much is it going to cost? So this is a, a fun one. So we thought we would look at not a big party um, and, you know, everyone's mileage will vary, but we thought you'd have six adults and four children. Um, and so this includes uh, the meat for burgers, the buns. Uh, we actually threw some veggie burgers in, uh, vegetables. Uh, some snacks, buns, cheese. Of course, you got to have a case of beer, a bottle of wine, all the condiments, uh, apples. You have some ice cream for dessert, some fruit juice and pop for the kids. Um, you know, even some whipping cream to have with some strawberries. All of that for you know a nice, uh, nice barbecue party. And we found uh, we looked at Toronto for this. It's going to cost you about uh, $130. Yes, okay. I'll take your word for it. I know when I throw a party, it costs a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, again, your mileage may vary. That is definitely true. And how much would it have cost back in 1967? We found it would have cost about $15.50 wow. back then. Um, you know, and that's, in fact, uh, you know, that's a little bit probably on the high side because some of these, you know, we're not able to really map back um, in an exact way. Right, some of this, uh, the products that are on sale today are not, not quite the same. Uh, but again, you know, a very, very big difference here, um, about eight times less uh, than it would have cost uh, today to have that party.
That was TD Senior Economist Brian DePrato. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. When we return, we'll celebrate the Canada Day long weekend with one of this country's greatest musical icons. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international art state book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. There will be plenty of Canadiana no matter where in the world you travel as Canada 150 celebrations continue. In New York City, Toronto's Soul Pepper Theatre Company takes over the Frank Gehry-designed Pershing Square Signature Centre on West 42nd Street for a month of productions. In all, a dozen Soul Pepper shows are to be staged. In London, Canada House dresses Trafalgar Square with red and white while offering maple treats, blueberry sorbet, barbecue, beer, and hockey, plus performances by the Royal Canadian Artillery Band, Tanya Tagak, and many others. In Hong Kong, where 300,000 Canadians make up the second largest expat group in the world, Canada Day signals the start of a 30-day dining experience, where restaurants are offering such delicacies as a Vancouver breakfast of smoked salmon and cream cheese, the Montreal Bagel Witch, and, of course, poutine, all washed down by the Calgary-invented Caesar. And finally, in Sydney, Australia, the Ottawa food staple, the Beaver Tail, will be on offer at all of the city's subway stops on Canada Day weekend, complete with maple syrup. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. He's a folk rock legend and has been referred to as Canada's greatest songwriter. Today, we celebrate the Canada Day weekend with 79-year-old Gordon Lightfoot. Born in Orillia in 1938, he broke onto the music scene in the 60s with songs like For Lovin' Me and Early Morning Rain, which helped form what would be the folk music scene of the 60s and 70s. He reached Billboard success through the 70s with songs like If You Could Read My Mind and The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and he topped the charts with Sundown in 1974. He was described by Robbie Robertson of the band as a national treasure and has won dozens of awards and honors for his work. He still performs today with a tour schedule that rivals some of the most active musicians in the world. And just yesterday, he was a headliner at the massive celebration on Parliament Hill. Now we'll hear one of the songs Gordon Lightfoot is best known for, Sundown. That was Sundown by one of the most iconic singer-songwriters in Canadian history, Gordon Lightfoot. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.